Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I'll be talking to George Eaton and Caroline Crampton about tensions in the Labour Party and the threat from UKIP and the Greens. Then I'll be talking to Ian Steadman about why it isn't a good idea to go to Mars just yet. It's been another miserable week for Labour with a tetchy meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party. I'm joined by our political editor, George Eaton, and Caroline Crampton, the web editor, to talk a little bit around those issues. George, first of all, tell us what happened at this PLP meeting. Well, it was the first meeting of the party since uh, the conference season and since the near-death experience in the Haywood and Middleton by-election where they finished uh, 617 votes uh, ahead of UKIP. And um, the Labour Party is very anxious at the moment. It's not, uh, it's not at war. Um, actually, by historic standards, Labour remains remarkably united. But there's a lot of anxiety that um, Labour's poll lead still isn't large enough to survive a general election campaign against a Conservative Party that's in uh, more disciplined and, and, and better better shape than it was in So the conference bounce is, is kind of over for the Conservatives. It the is. polls have now snapped back to that idea of being Labour of being two to four points ahead. That's right, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, what one, one MP said to me is whenever the Conservatives can secure favourable headlines, such as after the most recent budget or after Cameron's conference speech, they get a bounce. And they anticipate that in a general election campaign when most of the press and big business will rally to the Conservative cause and there's some swing back from UKIP, um, then, then Labour will be beaten. Others are still expecting a win, but it's not the win they hoped for. Very few are now predicting a majority. They think Labour will get over the line. Um, but they're not they're not inspired in, in the way they wanted to be. And one of the amazing things, Caroline, is how disciplined the Tories be. I guess we can attribute this to Linton Cosby, their strategist, who has at least instilled a kind of fiery discipline, even as they technically, I mean, this is very interesting, the idea that they lost Clacton, they just wrote off that by-election, they said, we know we're going to lose that to UKIP. They've actually decided to pile a huge amount of resources into the next by-election on November the 20th, Rochester and Strood. Why are the Tories taking their shellacking so much more equitably than Labour are? Well, when you actually unpick it, I think it is hinting at a very clever strategy, because you're quite right. You can imagine the Conservative Party of, what, five, 
five years ago, say, being complete, in complete disarray about this, you know, a, a long-time Conservative MP, very respected on the back benches, but they defects to a different party, and what, we don't even care? You know, there was very, huge party discipline keeping, immediately moving to this message of, well, you know, it's UKIP, who even cares? You know, it doesn't matter, we don't mind, we're better than that. But the interesting thing, looking forward to Rochester, is that um, Kent and North Kent in particular has always been a kind of uneasy conservative truce between the kind of upper middle class southeastern people and the blue collar workers who actually work in the Medway towns. And so they've never, re the for instance, the local conservative association in Rochester is not particularly activist. They've never had to be. And now suddenly, you know, head office is coming down there. They're all going to have to get out the vote in a way that they've never had to in that region before. And it's astonishing, isn't it, George, the amount of resources that have been put into these seats. I think you were saying that a hundred Labour MPs visited um, uh, Hayward and Middleton. I imagine that for the Conservatives it's going to be, I mean, they're going to see David Cameron more times than Samantha yeah. Cameron, I would imagine, <laughs> in, the, in the course of the next month. Yes, yeah, so all MPs have been ordered by Crosby to visit three times, all Cabinet Ministers have been ordered to visit five times, and um, it's vital that they hold on to the seat to prevent any other defections and to end UKIP's momentum. Um, That's really interesting, I think, is that they do care deeply, right? But they're trying not to show how much they yeah. care, because otherwise, if they do lose, it's a great cat catastrophe, rather than, as they successfully did with Clacton, it's sort of being priced in. Yes. Like, oh, well, obviously, we're going to lose, let's move on to the But next if they thing. do lose, I mean, for the Conservatives, that is a, a serious hit, isn't it? I mean, Yes, it is, and they'll, they'll try and explain it away and say this is a by-election, people might behave differently at a general election. But it means that the calculus for Tory MPs will shift. They'll think, well, if even Reckless, who most people don't rate, doesn't have a great local reputation in the way Carswell did, can win under UKIP colours, and particularly if it's a convincing win, if it's as large as the first poll suggested, which put him, I think, almost 10 points ahead, then they will consider they will consider defecting. And um, more broadly, it will just it will, it will mean that Labour will be able to say, look, this is a Prime Minister now who's lost two of his MPs, they've lost two by-elections, we, you know, we, we, we're not losing MPs to, to UKIP. So in that sense, the, even though it's, it's sort of terrifying for Labour that UKIP can run them that close in a by-election, uh, such as this, the momentum UKIP's gathered, that the, the bar's been raised now. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the momentum because there was a report by Marcus Roberts of the Fabians called Revolt on the Left, mm. which is obviously an answer to Rob Ford and Matthew Goodwin's book Revolt on the Right, which was about UKIP's um, challenge to the Tories, outlining exactly the seats of Labour's that are, are vulnerable to a big UKIP surge. Has Labour really got to the grips with why its core vote might be going UKIPwards? No, I don't think it has yet. Um, part of it, I think, is people who were alienated by the party during the, the new Labour years and, and who, um, who, who never returned. Others are using it as a, as a, as a protest against, um, against, against Labour. Others are, are not voting. So that's a Labour field. Turnout in Hayward and Middleton was only 36%. Um, they think had, had there been a general election, say, closer to 50%, then uh, they would have won much more, much more convincingly. Um, but in terms of the Labour response to UKIP, I mean, what the strategists say is that there are several components. Really. Part of it is being, in their words, on the pitch on immigration in Europe. So not making these your biggest issues, but making sure you have a, a clear line and something to say. Um, then it's attacking the UKIP as more more Tory than this the This is the Thatcherite, sort of Nigel yeah. Farage in the, in the Thatcher wig. 
And, and talking of challenges to Labour, you also wrote a story this week, George, um, about Sadiq Khan being appointed to lead a, a, a Labour sort of rebuttal of, of the Greens. And I think that's very interesting because I feel that there are some of those voters maybe who defected uh, from the Lib Dems to Labour who might be tempted by the Greens now. There might be young people who haven't voted before who were tempted by the kind of anti-authoritarianism of the Greens. What kind of challenge do the Greens pose electorally to Labour? So Labour's estimated that the Greens could possibly cost it up to 17 seats indirectly. So by splitting the left-wing vote, they allow the Tories to win or the, or the Lib Dems to win. And these are voters who are, who are who are on the left and who are attracted to the Greens, not just because of their environmentalist policies, but because they've branded themselves as the only anti-austerity party. And they've put forward policies such as uh, £9 or sort of £10 minimum wage, which is above the £8 promised by Labour, um, a tax on the, a wealth tax on the top 1%, full renationalisation of the railways. I mean, these are policies to the left of those offered by Labour, and, and they are appealing, uh, particularly in London, to some of the groups um, that, that New Labour lost, and some and um, such, as, such as students. Mm. And we're now seeing a really bizarre situation, aren't we, Caroline, where there are, there's a five-way marginal now, um, Harry Lambert, who runs our site, may2015.com, is going to go visit some of these places, but there are seats where more than, you know, they are more than a two-way marginal, they're more than a three-way marginal, they're going into a four- or five-way marginal. Yes, um, Taunton Dean, where um, Jeremy Brown has stepped down, the Lib Dem, Jeremy Brown has just stepped down, is an interesting one. Um, also, Norfolk, there's a, a seat like that as well. But you've also got seats um, like Hoban and St Pancras, um, where the Green Party leader, Matthew Bennett, is standing, where she didn't do particularly well last time. But that seat does incorporate, I think it's in the population of maybe 20% students, because it's where the University College of London's halls are. Um, so, given what George was just saying, he's quite right about the appeal the Green Party has for perhaps students who would have customarily not, not voted Labour, they want a left-wing vote, they would have gone with them, but they can't now because of the tuition fees stuff. The Green Party is the obvious choice for them. So she could indeed, and Holden St Pancras, the long-time Labour MP, Frank Dobson, is stepping down at the next election, it suddenly sort of opens up a race in a way that hasn't really been there before. Well, you're certainly going to be hearing more from us in terms of talking about constituencies around the country, um, and we'll be hearing more from George and Caroline. Thank you. It's bad news if you want to go to Mars. A new study has discovered that if you get there, you'll die within 68 days. I'm joined by our science writer, Ian Stedman, who we've previously talked about Mars, haven't we, quite a lot, Ian? Yes. And I've expressed reservations about the whole idea, but there are some very, there's a lot of money going into it. Um, there is. Well, there isn't. There are a lot of people who want to spend. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And a lot of money to go to Mars, but can't necessarily get hold of it. And one of those organizations is Mars One, which is uh, based in the Netherlands. And it's essentially a reality TV show. They want to send a bunch of colonists to live on Mars, eventually die on Mars, um, and 
24 hours a day, Truman Show style, they'll be under cameras and stuff. And the entire mission will be funded by the proceeds from the ads and stuff, you know, selling the TV rights and things. The problem with that is, I always think, the first series of Big Brother was amazing and everybody watched it and it was fantastic. Now, they're churning about about three a year as far as I yeah. can tell, and only really the Daily Star cares about it. So, at some point, what if people just stop watching and therefore they stop funding it? Big problem, yeah. Uh, the guy who founded it, a guy called uh, Lans- uh, Guy Lansdorp, um, he... Um, cites the Red Bull jumping. The, who's the Felix Baumgartner. Felix Baumgartner. Yes, he from the edge of space. space yeah, yeah, which everyone tuned into and watched. It was really amazing. And that lasted about ten minutes. Though, yeah, and he was like, "There's there's an audience for this kind of thing, but you know, whether it would exist beyond ten minutes is is up for debate." Um, but anyway, Mars One. What they want to do is they want to raise some money by um, they've got corporate sponsors. Anyone who's applied to be an astronaut with them has to pay an entrance fee. Um, and then they just want to raise stuff privately in the TV show. They want to send a lander to Mars in about 10 years that will sort of assemble a base that's big enough for four people, then four people will arrive. They'll build the next base that's big enough for another four people, the next four people arrive, and they'll keep building until eventually they've got 40 people on living on Mars in this little colony sometime in the 2040s and 50s. And the key to this whole thing, um, the reason he says it's doable, is that he says it's doable with the technology on the ISS, as in, like, current technology is good enough that we can already colonise Mars, uh, which is not what NASA says. NASA says that when you factor in the cost of R&D on top of building the rockets and everything, it's going to cost, like, $100 billion just to send three people to land on Mars and get them back. So building an entire colony, he says it's going to take $6 billion, which is... Yeah. I guess the fundamental problem is that if, in the absence of terraforming technology, the environment is so hostile, the atmosphere yeah. is incredibly thin, it's not oxygenated to the level you'd need to support human life. Dust storms. Dust is a huge, huge problem. I mean, these, the winds are going at 100 miles an hour, and just purely because the atmosphere is so thin, apparently you wouldn't feel it, but it would oh, very yeah. much um, get grit in all your radiators. <laughs> yes. Um, the, um, the Apollo missions, the dust was an incredible problem, because moon dust is kind of like very tiny diamonds. So it gets in all the creases of your, your spacesuits, it gets in the seals around the doors, and it cuts all the, the rubber and the sealant and stuff if you stay out there for too long. Um, and it breathes it in, and it creates like black lung-type diseases if you have enough. It's nasty stuff, and I mean, the stuff on Mars is going to be the same. Um, but that's the essential problem. Unless you can make the, the climate of Mars less hostile to life, you're essentially going to be putting people into it, having to live perpetually on an international space station. Yes. And I hadn't re- appreciated fully until I did a piece about Mars and talked to a lot of astronauts how much just fundamentally everything that you take for granted is made so much more difficult by being in a kind of tin can. Not only that, so the lack of gravity is, is fascinating. So, for example, if you get a cold in space, it's really difficult to blow your nose because mm. your sinuses don't drain. You know, tears just well up in your eyes. Um, Chris Hadfield has a story in his book about going on a, on a spacewalk to repair something on the outside of the thing and having a tiny bit of detergent on the inside of his, his visor, which gets into his eye. He starts crying. Both eyes then well up, but they don't drain the tears. He's now on the outside of the International Space Station, hurtling through space, completely blind. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and that's the kind of thing, luckily, that they do endless hours of training on, on NASA. But that's going to be three years of that just to get... There's also the ISS missions are only limited to six months because the effects of zero-g on human bodies are... Well, it it is pretty disastrous, really. Um, Astronauts who stay up in the ISS, when they land back on Earth, uh, you might see photos of them being being carried out. out. That's not because it's like, hey, they got back. It's like they're they're so physically weak because their muscles and bones have have lost so much mass 
one's face, even though they work out for hours every day to try and counter it. Well, apparently, um, the problem is it, your, it's all your hip muscles, basically, that you mm. can't, because even if you're on a harness that are being pushed down onto a treadmill, those load-bearing muscles that you would just use, you, do, you don't use them, no. you know, you can, do, you can do resistance arm exercises, and that's fine. And then there comes the problem of limited supplies of water, which is very heavy to carry, uh, and oxygen, which is both a wonderful thing to breathe in and keep you alive, but also a really good way to start a fire. Yes, exactly, and that's exactly why this Mars One thing won't work, apparently. Um, there's a team at MIT who just did the post-feasibility study of the Mars One project as it's been proposed, and they did some computer models using, assuming that it was going to be you know, the life support systems on the ISS, similar space modules to the ISS, just on Mars instead of orbiting. Um, and they found out that after 68 days they could expect the first fatality, and that was because the life support systems on the ISS are designed to circulate the air, but they're not designed to separate it out so you get the correct proportions of oxygen, nitrogen, etc. Um, and to survive on Mars, you know, they can't keep sending supplies in the well, so they have to grow some of their own food in greenhouses, and they're going to use the oxygen those plants produce to fill the space station. This is the plot of sunshine, isn't it? It's like that, but the opposite. Because <laughs> the sunshine, the problem is the greenhouse burns down, doesn't it? Yeah. So they lose all the oxygen. In this one, um, going by the size of the, like, the amount of crops you need to grow in order to live on Mars, the amount of oxygen those crops will produce will quickly cause uh, the life support system to shut down because too much oxygen is being forced Unless through you have a lot of people breathing in a lot of yeah. oxygen and turning it to carbon dioxide, then so, your balance is going to be out. Yeah, work. so basically the life support system shut down because of too much oxygen, and then you get just no air, so everyone asphyxiates after 68 days. Um, and you can fix that, for instance, you can just filter out into space, but that means you have to develop a new technology in order to do that, because that doesn't, well, that does exist on Earth, no one's ever used that technology in space. So the effects of less gravity, and for instance, and, and you know, uh, the fact that spare parts are an eight-month, no, what, eight-month, eighteen-month, sorry, yeah. uh, space flight away are kind of a problem. So you need to not only develop new technologies, but you need to be able to develop new technologies that are resilient enough to not break down between resupply missions. I think that's the that's the kind of quantum leap between going to the moon or going to the ISS and going to Mars is that you know you can resupply to the International Space Station or you know or you, if someone's very ill you can bail them out and you can mm. realistically given weather conditions you can do that within a couple of days. Everything is, is eighteen months away. Yeah. And there is there is you know there isn't oh God I've got this or you know we need to send back for that or somebody's contracted a, a you know, a serious disease, and one of the things that's most interesting about what they do with astronauts is they you know, screen them incredibly heavily, they put them in quarantine for a couple of days beforehand, and even then, that people have had, oh, I think it was the Apollo 8 mission, they all got chronic diarrhoea in the capsule, which is like <laughs> the least fun experience ever. There is a transcript of, uh, I believe it's, it might be a later Apollo mission, but um, it's, it has to be left out of the official narrative, but at some point, a, a piece of feces gets loose in the cab and it's floating around. Yeah. And um, you can see the radio tran the transcripts of the radio transmissions between Earth and NASA. And NASA's going, what the hell's going on up there? And they say, well, there's something in the cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> in the cockpit. And everyone's denying it's there. Yeah, and I think that's partly, this is a problem with the kind of romanticised view that we have and the, you know, those kind of narratives that we've, we've told ourselves about what it means to be an astronaut. And it's it's not, I mean, this is something that Chris Hadfield said to me, it's not like being a test pilot in the early days. You know, in, in the early days of the space program, what they wanted was kind of alpha males who were very okay with danger. Um, now what they want is kind of more technocrats, people who can sustain for you know, six months, maybe longer, who are easy to live with, who aren't kind of totally dominant in any group. Because, you know, who wants 
that much as we all love the movie Top Gun, <laughs> being trapped in a capsule with Tom Cruise's character in that would probably lead to a fatality. Yes. Um, so, but I suppose the thing to say is that I kind of love that people are still trying. Yeah. Every time a new problem comes up, that's <laughs> people are then kind of like, okay, well, let's, yeah. Yeah, yeah this, this study was not, like, debunking it. Like, the, the authors were very clear that they're big fans of the idea of colonising Mars. They just, you know, want to make sure that it's... Okay. Not, not dead. <laughs> it's not dead. Well, it's, the people who go there are going to die anyway, but the key is they die of old age instead of, you know, asphyxiation or starvation um, or any of the other kind of problems that can happen where, for instance, an air conditioning unit breaks down and the next rocket's four minutes away. That's the kind of thing that sounds like nothing on Earth, but Mars can probably lead to a chain reaction. Well, on that <laughs> pessimistic note, thank you very much, Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, produced by Ian Stedman. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and you can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.